Hey, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy, and I love buying my comics at Meltdown Comics, and I know you do too, so I'm going to give you a little gift, and that gift is a discount. So if you use my password, which is going to be Pod Sequentialism Rocks, to any of the employees that work here at checkout, they will give you a discount on your comics. How much is that discount? 11%. Can't beat that with a bag of hammers. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. We are, as always, recording, or I should say as usual, uh, recording uh, here at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, which is my favorite place to shop for comics. And we are also presented by La Luz de Jesus Gallery, which is part of the Wacko Soap Plant family. Uh, greatest gift store in the, in the world. I highly endorse you showing up to shop there. Um, and what I thought would be nice is to tackle a subject that I get asked about probably more than anything. And because I'm an art, art gallery director and because I also have amassed a fairly impressive collection, um, and I, not a humble brag, but um, that I do often get contacted by museums to borrow pieces from my collection, I'm only happy to do so. Um, I get asked a lot um, from people who would like to collect, how do I become a collector? And from artists, how do I get collected? And so I'm gonna dedicate this episode to those two things. and based on uh, my two and a half decades of experience um, as an, an, an art dealer and um, possibly even longer as a collector, uh, we'll try and, and get to, I think, the basics and how you can do so affordably and uh, on both ends of the equation. So if you're looking to start an art collection, of course, you have to start collecting at some point. And um, I'm going to mention somebody that um, that actually advertises on, on this show and, and some of the other shows across the format because I think that this is they speak to this particular issue and it's loot crate. And, um, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people, especially on shows, and you'll, you'll hear a, a kind of an awkward segue and they'll read an ad. And I didn't want to do that because I think that um, it's something that I really like. It's um, something that I subscribe to, you know, 20 bucks a month and you get um, a lot of collectible things. And some of these things would qualify as investment as in, in the collecting hobby. And, um, you know, as usual, what I will say is that, you know, we, we have a, a transaction code that we can give you. So if you go to lootcrate.com, there's a forward slash and you type in podsec, P-O-D-S-E-Q, and um, then you get to the, um, the password page and it's going to be podsec3, um, you'll save three bucks uh, on your monthly uh, subscription. And, you know, they're... They do have great stuff. They have great collectible things, often related to gaming and comics and comic-related movies and genre and fantasy. And I think that when you start collecting, no matter what you start collecting, you need to know what it is that you like. And if you put a lot of thought into what you like and the types of stuff that you collect, then you know what the high-demand items are. And if you become adept at being able to identify, even within that kind of um, specified area of collecting, then you know what's too much to pay for things. And you can look back and compare to other similar collectibles across different titles or different genres and understand whether something is appreciating. And um, since I don't want this to be too general, I'm going to use a couple of, of examples. So 25 years ago, um, you know, when McFarlane Toys was first starting to crank out um, uh, 
some of the um, the line beyond the Spawn collection. But even within that collection, they had done a toy for Sam Keith's Max. And here on the West Coast, that became a really high-demand toy. And toy collecting in those days went from being going to, you know, the, the release date at Toys R Us and standing in line and fighting with people over opening the boxes to um, having a connection or someone who worked in the stores who could get you early access or to paying a premium when buying at collectible stores. Now, as collecting started to spread out, even these things became really quickly eclipsed so that the secondary market and then early sales on sites like eBay, which would be around the corner and wasn't really quite happening yet, um, you'd see things at conventions. They'd be marked very, very expensive. And I use that Max toy because I remember purchasing that toy, I think, from Toys R Us for probably 8 or $9 and immediately putting it on consignment in a shop on Melrose where we were getting $75 per toy. And that's what you call a, a good short-term investment. Um, you know, I don't think the toy ever got much more valuable than that. Um, I was taking advantage of market conditions at the time to turn a profit. And when you think about collecting long-term and putting together an important collection of work, you kind of have to look beyond that. You have to look beyond the immediate and the, um, and the quick buck. And it also involves um, having the ability to move things from place to place. So when you're first starting out a collection, if you're someone who lives in an apartment or you live at your mom and dad's, um, and if, if you live at a place that's being rented as opposed to owned, then that's going to shape what you collect and the size of things and how easy it is to store and move those things. So you're probably not going to be collecting, say, um, very large format sculpture. Um, and you're probably not even going to be collecting very large format paintings. Um, a lot of people that buy paintings and they buy paintings at, at exhibition are buying them already stretched and already framed. And so storing a very large format piece can be difficult. And unless you feel adept enough to remove things from stretchers and roll things up, um, they will remain difficult to store. And so you have to think about those things. And you have to think about you know, the longevity of your own situation, like how much money do you make now? Is, is that likely to increase or decrease? And, and you don't need to be, you know, you don't have to have a crystal ball. It becomes kind of a common sense thing. And certainly things can happen as have happened in markets in the past where um, the um, situations change and jobs go away. But basically when putting together the criteria for collecting stuff, are collecting important works and, and having a collection sort of in the capital sense and not just um, that you collect things, but a collection that other people who also collect can look at and say, hey, you know, this is this is important work. Um, then you, you really need to be aware of the limitations of not just your collectible disposable income, but um, your overall well-being and your career path. And so I think that most people don't actually start to think of investment collecting until they reach a point where they feel very comfortable. They own their house. It's paid off. They've, you know, they, they own their car. Um, if they have any debt, it's not a large amount of debt. It's a type of thing that can be carried over months under a, um, you know, a, a predetermined interest rate that you can, you can maintain. But that said, you can start collecting uh, inexpensively and you can just hang on to things and you can marvel at how they appreciate. Uh, one thing that I've mentioned plenty of times on this program is what a great investment original comic book art has been in the last 25 years. And in looking at the prices that uh, 
early kind of journeyman pages. Uh, when I say early, I mean, you know, maybe the early 70s, uh, late 60s in pages by journeyman pencilers like Jim Aparo or Carmine Infantino, uh, Sal Buscema, um, you know, not necessarily the John Burns, the uh, not necessarily the Bernie Wrightsons, but um, people that were doing a lot of titles and a lot of titles that were in monthly books and for long periods of time and that are now appreciated as being part of that kind of amazing era in the Bronze Age and the early Dark Age. And even people like Gene Colan, who, who was always considered a very gifted penciler, his work did not appreciate at the rate of some of his peers because he was more of a fill-in guy than a, a monthly um, a title penciler, except on certain books like Daredevil. And um, because Daredevil wasn't Spider-Man, wasn't X-Men, um, and it wasn't part of that Frank Miller run, um, it was still very, very undervalued for a very long time. Um, I was actually able to get an amazing Tomb of Dracula original art page um, with, uh, ink, with uh, ink wash. So really beautiful page uh, from the black and white magazine, Tomb of Dracula, not from the, the comic. So it has a little bit more of adult material. It was a great page. And I was able to get it right around the time that, uh, that Gene died. And affordably, it was, it was a few hundred dollars. Uh, that same page within a month had um, probably tripled or quadrupled in value. Um, and not just because uh, Gene had passed away, but because it coincided with a, a big renaissance and appreciation for the really great illustrators and their work in the Dark Ages, in, in the late Bronze Age in comics in the, the mid-70s. So when thinking about what it is that you like, it, you know, if, if collecting in the fine art market and even like the kind of, you know, if there's an A, B, C, D, E level of, of collecting and A level being, you know, that above uh, $20,000 um, investment point and and that being mainly prints up to the you know the millions and hundreds of millions of dollars being in the a as part of like the things you might get at Gagosian gallery and then maybe a nice middle of the road gallery like you know la luz de jesus which in in that scale would probably be around a c c minus um that you have to think of what your aesthetic is and in reading interviews with some of the people at the top um, and people like um, you know Gagosian, Larry Gagosian, uh, the man whose who's name became the gallery, he talked about that you have to buy something at a certain point and hang it on your wall and know how you feel about it. And so you, you sort of have to start buying things and I think that the first things that a lot of people buy in the collector sort of era of things and when I say collector, I mean genre collectors, you know, comic books, that type of thing, or movie posters. That you might buy a movie poster, you might get it framed, and you might hang it on your wall. Now, movie posters are very collectible and very prone to increasing in value. And factors like having it autographed and having evidence of that autograph so that it can be proved to be genuine um, can very much increase the value of, of a poster. Um, there's some discussion about at what point the age of a poster um, and the condition can be affected by what it is signed with. But I think in the modern era, you're not too much worried about people signing with ballpoint pens. People, I think, are, are generally these days signing with, um, with felt tip markers, with permanent ink, and the type of ink that can survive um, a, um, a matting process, which is where you take the poster and you get it matted at an archival piece of art, which reinforces the paper. And, um, and you can get a, a professional linen backing job from any number of professionals. One of the people that we had in the show not too long ago was Christopher Sapp. Uh, his mother is one of the 
um, most highly sought people for preserving um, poster and archival paper. There's also, we mentioned in that show, people like Poster Mountain. Um, I got literally hundreds of posters, uh, linen-backed over the years at Poster Mountain um, to preserve and to make it easier to have things framed. And um, whether it's the Japanese collectible posters that uh, probably account for the greatest part of my poster collection or um, specific genre titles, it, it you can get a full one sheet size poster linen backed for probably eighty to one hundred dollars, and in for a smaller an insert poster you're looking at probably somewhere between uh, forty five and sixty in in current market value, and it's something to think about if you've got a collectible poster and you don't have a great means of being able to um, keep it safe. Um, you don't want to keep a bunch of posters rolled up in a tube because they, they start to take on the shape of the tube. And if you linen back it and roll it up and then you put that in some kind of protection, and it can be something as simple as wrapping it around a um, you know a, a piece of broom or, or a tube and then covering that tube in, so around the outside of the tube, and then covering that tube in a, um, in a garbage bag as long as it's um, not going to get squished under something, then you've you've just added a lot of life to that particular collectible. And in 15 or 20 years, you'd be surprised at how things can appreciate. Uh, another golden example, I'll use a specific example, um, Star Wars rolled original um, style A movie poster, uh, which I, I purchased one in the early 90s for, I think, $100.00 and had it linen backed and kept it in storage and that same poster is now in the condition that it's in and because it's linen backed and is in beautiful condition on near mint condition um, you're looking at a piece that's probably closer to 1500 to 2000 dollars so that's a huge appreciation to go from 100 to now 15 to 20 times that value in 20 years is unheard of and so there are a lot of people who i think can get it's easy to get overboard in the movie poster collectible market and then it becomes hard to actually store them and the best way to store movie posters is in a flat file unless you have them linen backed and then it's okay to have them rolled because they can only get so tight it's not going to get so tight that it affects the shape of the poster and um, and it's just generally good advice now other things of course we've seen uh, in the collectible market you know the CVG guide um, using a grading system for comic books and that's a little bit more difficult so that involves collecting something and then paying somebody else to judge and assess its condition and value and then having it popped into a you know a a preserving container that um, also has the marking of the company that has rated the condition and I think that as we start moving forward, you're going to see a, that ability, um, I think, stretched out so that the, there'll be possibility to get some kind of accreditation from that organization so that you can then extend um, condition to other people. And you may see some shops uh, investing in that, sending people out to classes and having them get a certificate so that they can professionally grade um, on location in their shop. And I think that will open up that area of collectible to a, a much wider group of people. And I think it will make the collecting of those types of comics actually grow and not shrink because it will be seen as 
something that a reasonable person can now obtain and it won't be such a huge difference perhaps in the pricing of a general new book and one that has been um, guided and when you look at something like um, you know perhaps like saga number one which is not a very old comic but um, the difference between just having one in, in relatively near mint condition and having one graded as it is a 9.5 or above by the um, the grading authority it's the difference between a couple hundred dollars and probably twelve hundred dollars but that's substantial so I mean if, if you're reading a book that catches the zeitgeist um, it might be a good idea to go back and and find those early issues in the best condition possible and then get them graded get them protected and and hang on to those because I don't think that those are the types of things that are ever going to go down in value at least not this early on in the game now um, as far as buying art affordably what you want to do is you want to know what your taste level is and what your budget is and I, I say taste level first because I think that you have to be aware of what it is that you like and then you can assess what its value is to you so if you are going to be collecting original paintings or drawings then you want to find out what stuff you really respond to and enjoy and figure out how much that costs and then you'll know how fast your collection can grow and how much of your income has to be saved before you can start throwing money towards something that a lot of the public consider to be not necessary um, I happen to think that art is a necessity. I've obviously dedicated my life to it and, um, and into showcasing it and working with artists. And I understand that having the right piece of decorative art in your house um, can bring a happiness that other things can't. And those other people that would maybe scoff at buying art are still spending a lot of money on clothing. And that, you know, aside from just the ability to cover your skin and keep you warm anything beyond that becomes style and style is a a judgment based on the artfulness of of the the object so if you've ever paid for designer jeans um you're already in the mentality of somebody that would collect art and certainly just as there are certain very top level designer pieces that never lose their value um, you can kind of take that mindset forward. Where it gets different is that, of course, almost all of the clothing decreases in value the second you take it off of the, um, the rack at the store. It immediately decreases in value. And um, whereas, you know, paintings and things of a more aesthetic, purely aesthetic and non-functional nature uh, tend to appreciate. So figure out what your budget is. If you can't afford a painting but you really like illustration, then you, you might want to think about collecting published comic book art. If the titles that um, you want and the pages that respond to you are unavailable, then you may want to seek out a commission from the artist who did them. And um, commissions do not appreciate in value nearly as much as published work because they lack provenance. And also because most artists don't push their original artwork pricing up that much. So they, they tend to stagnate. A comic book artist may be getting paid from a comic publisher, $150, $200 a page to produce the work. And then they turn around and sell that original artwork when they get it back on the resale market for anywhere between, you know, $75 to a couple of thousand dollars, depending upon their, their name value. And if they were to redraw a published page, they may get um, the same amount of money that they would get from the sale of that page originally, although probably not. 
and it will not be as valuable because it's not the same one that was published. It lacks that provenance that any reasonable person can um, can recognize. In other words, the original page, they can open up the, the comic book it was published in and see that it is the original page. Now, granted, with a lot of um, digital elements coming into the creation of work, and I mentioned Saga, which is an entirely digitally um, created comic book. Um, in the case of that book, the only original art is art that is being recreated by the penciler specifically for resale. And um, as that work becomes higher and higher demand, the price rate being charged for uh, commissions is going to rise as well. And that makes it better for people who bought in early. Um, but then the quality of commission work versus the, the, um, the quality of published work tends to vary. I very rarely see, um, you know, say a, a convention commission sketch come even near the final finish of a published page. And that's because often artists will have a completion rate of maybe one page per day for a published comic, whereas at a convention they may crank out 10 to 20 drawings. Um, so the same amount of work and thought and time is very different, and that's another thing that tends to be missing between the two. But, um, you know, that still gives you options, and if you have a piece from the, from your favorite artist, if you, one of your favorite artists are something that you feel is historically significant, uh, is from somebody who's passed away, and then the ability to afford an original published uh, provenance page may be less than being able to get a sketch that was produced at some point. And then you at least still have an original artwork from that person, and that can be um, very gratifying and can help form the cornerstone of a large and important collection. But if you, like I say, if you know what you like, you can find galleries online, and then you can contact them and, and figure out what things cost, and you can plan towards an expense. Maybe not for that show, and maybe by the time you discovered it, those pieces are sold out. But um, you can request to be put on a notification list, and, and you can, you know, go from there and hopefully start acquiring pieces after you know that it's probably going to be a year for their next show. gives you time to save up money, and um, hopefully their price point hasn't changed so drastically that you can't buy in the second time around either. So I'm going to take a first break here before um, getting into the second half of this conversation, which is, of course, uh, aimed at artists and how to become collected. So, um, you know, stay tuned. Uh, we're going to be talking about these things uh, in detail. I'm going to give you some very specifics, and, um, and we'll go from there. So um, join us again right after this break and a word from our sponsor. Hello, welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. And uh, before the break, we were talking about how to become a collector. And, um, you know, I did promise that we we're going to get into how to be collected as well. But um, one thing I want to address before we get specifically to that is in shaping a collection. Um, a few years ago, it became really common to see people with specific uh, sketchbooks. They would go to conventions and they had one theme and they would have people draw something of that theme into the books. And then these sketchbooks become very, very valuable um, as one body of work. It becomes a single body of a collection of unique work. I remember back in 1995, I think it was, um, that the first of two early uh, death sketchbooks, uh, they um, based on Neil Gaiman's um, writing of the character Death from the Sandman comic, and I remember seeing two of these books um, being brought from table to table in the artist alley back in those days and from um, you know, different 
name artists would charge a certain amount to to do their style of the character in this book. And what was great about that is that in both cases, the first couple of books had really detailed drawings from Chris Picello and um, I think even Sam Keith and some of the people who had worked uh, on the Sandman comic. And so for other people to have their work next to these pieces by the the artists most identifiable with the character, they kind of raised their game. And so while they may have only been convention sketches, a lot of these people went really, really far out of their way to make sure that, um, that their sketches were um, noticeable and stood out among this, this group of talent. And I'm sure at this point that there are maybe hundreds of uh, death sketchbooks that, that different fans have put together of varying quality. But um, even then, like I say, the the aggregate nature of collecting multiple original artworks in a single place can become quite valuable. And by virtue of having it in one volume, it's a very convenient place to be able to look at something. And um, in that way, I would compare it to a magical grimoire. You know, that it, it becomes this thing that is more than itself. It takes on an almost mystical quality. And there's very few areas of art collecting that can loan that type of gravitas, um, at least until you start getting really, really further up the fine art ladder. And then there, there are certain painters that, you know, work in their own DNA and in blood and things like that. And and that becomes a little bit more personal and, and maybe a bit more high concept. Uh, certainly people like... Um, Michael Husser and uh, Joe Coleman, and then in the in the fine art market, you have people like Mark Quinn who did a a sculpture of his own blood, uh, frozen blood, and um, and these take on a kind of very different aspect than just being a single original piece of artwork. You actually own a piece of the person who created it in some way, and um, whether you find that disturbing or whether you think that's cool, it does add a whole different level to the the idea of, of what can be art and, and, and what can be collected. So once you do develop what your budget is, and I mean, I, I throw a show once a year in September that every single piece in the show is at least uh, is on a four inch by four inch coaster, and in the last few years they've been tondo, so it's been a four inch circle. So every piece is the same size, and the prices on those vary between zero, meaning some of them are free, and two hundred and fifty dollars. So for two hundred fifty dollars, you can that being the maximum price, it's pretty much possible for anybody to start collecting art. And since a lot of pieces are less, some are 25, some are 50, you can maybe start off with a couple hundred bucks. If you start saving towards September, maybe you can get a whole set of, of coasters from a certain artist or from multiple artists that um, you can you can have framed, you can hang them, or you can put them in some kind of um, scrapbook, uh, hopefully not with a sticky back, <laughs> and um, and and start collecting a type of fine art that may become the cornerstone of a very large collection someday. And it may be possible that as certain artists' work becomes more appreciated, that you could sell one of those coasters and with that money put it towards a a more substantial larger piece that will absolutely be wall hung. But um, these are things that you can think about and certainly art does appreciate in value. So um, on to the second part of the topic which is how to get collected. So uh, this is probably the question that I get asked more than anything else, which, um, and it's it's coached in a bunch of different ways. Sometimes uh, someone will ask me, hey, how do I get my art into your gallery? And we have a very specific uh, submission policy, but it's not so different from everybody else's. And I'll get into that in a second. But I also get asked, um, you know, I've been painting for a while. I have had shows. I have ex- had exhibitions. 
how do I get my work into the right collections so that it starts to appreciate? And there isn't one answer to that. I think that um, obviously you want to sell more work than you don't sell. Um, so if you're painting and you're doing well and you go to a gallery, um, it's a bad idea for you to double your pricing from what you know you can get for it just because it's going into the gallery and just because you know you're going to get half. Um, you're handicapping the gallery immediately because anybody who knows your work uh, knows that they can get it for half off. And if they know that and they don't buy from the gallery and you're up for a month and you don't sell anything, your chances of getting another show at that gallery are very low and your chances of getting a show at any other gallery that pays attention to that gallery are very low. So you want to price the work to move. Um, you don't want to necessarily underprice your work, but if nobody knows who you are, your work isn't really worth anything. So not to belittle how long you take on your pieces, but, and I, and I generally insist that nobody put any work out there that they're less than proud of because it's not going to be a good thing. Um, it, those pieces will come back to haunt you when they hit the resale market eventually. And, um, you know, the more just great quality work you have out there, the better your chances are for accruing a name for yourself and getting the right types of collectors. You, the right types of collectors, by the way, are people that have started buying your work that are buying the art of better known artists. So that if they're hanging their pieces on a wall and they buy say a Mark Ryden painting and they buy your painting, then by virtue of you being on a wall next to Mark Ryden, your work has become more valuable. Um, this is true of people who have bought, you know, Jean-Michel Basquiat paintings and they buy newer street artists or even just regular contemporary artwork. And because it's on the wall next to Basquiat, if they're photographed together, that increases the reputation of this newer artist because there is this general understanding that the people who can buy and afford important works of art have good taste and they have already deemed you collection worthy. And you want to put those types of things on your resume. And um, that's another way that you start growing your, your value is that you start putting together a what's called the CV, which is a curriculum vitae. Um, and it's basically an art resume. It says, you know, that highlights where you went to school, your education, um, what important shows you've been a part of. If you haven't been part of important shows, put the unimportant shows until you get a long enough list of credits that you can start leaving off the less important things. And incidental things can be very important too. While they may not relate immediately to your exhibition record, they may be noteworthy to the people that collect your work. So if you're in a band and you also produce um, art, then you want to list your musical performances and the names of the bands that you've played with on your artist's CV because it becomes more uh, of a reason for somebody who doesn't necessarily know you for your painting to buy your work because they know you for your band. Now, the same is true if you're a filmmaker or if you're um, a performer. You can put these things into your, your um, curriculum vitae as part of a sweetener so that there's, it adds a second level of notoriety to your own fame. And never be afraid to use the synergy of your other activities to push all of them up at once. In other words, don't let one thing that you do hold another thing that you do down. They should all be working in the same direction and you should be sure that any publicity you get for any number of the disciplines that you do helps in 
increasing your name across whatever the activities are. So if you're an actor who paints or if you're a, a, um, a singer who paints, then um, don't be afraid to mix those worlds, you know, design your own, you know, do the artwork for your single if you're a singer. Um, you know, it's a little bit more difficult if you're an actor to uh, kind of bring your art into what it is that you do uh, because acting is a, an endeavor that um, relies upon many, many, you know, committee, de- committee decisions. But um, if possible, you know, and you have a T-shirt that has your design on it, you know, throw it on to try and get it into the scene. Obviously, if you're in a period film, that isn't going to work. But, um, you know, if you get interviewed for your acting, don't be afraid to mention the fact that you also paint, even if it's not the focus of, of, of the interview. Anything that gives you fame gives you fame across all platforms. Now, the other way to kind of climb the ladder once you have your foot in the door is donation, to donate work to the right collections. Um, And there is value in it. And again, you want to make sure that every piece that you have out there is worthy of your name. So if you have an older painting that you're not proud of, I honestly recommend you take a picture of it for posterity. Don't be afraid to paint over it. Um, if it's not something that you're proud of, then you don't want a picture for pros- for poster- for for, um, for future reference, and um, you want to make sure that um, that it's gone, that there's no evidence of it, because that bad work may be a hiccup, and you don't want that to be in the body work that you present. Of course, it may not be possible. Um, early on in the process to determine whether or not early work is important or not. And so I don't necessarily recommend destroying it. I do recommend hanging on to it. I don't recommend letting it out. So um, you want to make sure that that's not the work that you're donating. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, I've got this extra painting that I that didn't sell from an exhibition I did four years ago. So maybe I'll donate that. Well, if you want to donate it to a friend, that's fine, I guess. But um, if you're not proud of it, just put it back in the closet or paint over it. And um, if you do accrue a reputation and you are starting to show, then start contacting small museums. You know, there are a lot of small museums are happy to take on pieces in their permanent collection. And then you get to add that into your curriculum vitae. You get to say that one of your paintings is now in the permanent collection of and whatever institution it is. And it doesn't have to be MOCA. It doesn't have to be MoMA. And um, But it's cool if it is, and it doesn't have to be the New York MoMA, and it doesn't have to be the Los Angeles Contemporary Museum of Art. It can be, you know, Buffalo. It can be, you know, um, Indianapolis. It can be any place. Honestly, you know, as long as you're in a, a museum collection, it has some cachet. And by virtue of that, that may be able to get you into another institution that um, that is perhaps bit, a bit more well-known. And that may be what gets you into a better gallery because they've seen that you have pieces in these museums. So this all helps work towards raising and elevating your presence in the art market, and that's just good for your career. Now, there's a caveat to all of this, and that is that even most of the, the relatively successful people I know that, that make a living from their art, it's not the only thing they do. And I don't mean that as that they're, um, you know, uh, multi-talented autodidacts, but that they have other jobs. And it's incredibly difficult to make a living as an artist based on your art alone, unless you've spent a fortune on your education and you have a very impressive um, graduate degree from the right university, which signals to a certain um, segment of the, the powerful collector that you are a good investment because you've spent so much money in your education. 
But um, if you don't have that, then it can be a very long road. And so you really have to start looking at that, um, that other activity as being on par with a Harvard education, we'll say, um, or a Yale education. And so you, you, it's going to be tougher and you have to string together those things in a way that makes narrative sense and helps tell the same story and doesn't come off as being a bunch of disjointed things. But it, it can be very, very helpful. And I think that, you know, in, in my particular case, as somebody who had worked around art for more than 25 years, um, when I had started working with um, a collective and, and getting their work and my work together in, in a collaborative form, I really felt that I needed to have a degree that I didn't have. And my collaborators did have those degrees. So collectively, we had uh, these credentials. But when I started looking back on some of the things that I'd accomplished, I realized that a lot of those things were very much um, a more important part of a resume than necessarily the right degree from the right school. And uh, while I do at some point uh, sort of expect <laughs> um, and maybe uh, um, it's debatable, but um, that I think that uh, a lot a lot of people who work in, in the type of job that I have and have, have worked as frequently with the types of schools that I do, um, there's always that possibility you're going to get an honorary degree, but you can't depend on that stuff. You have to really uh, put the work in and that work, that actual physical work over time is as valuable, if not more valuable than the right degree from the right school. So bear that in mind. But um, so how do you get to that point? How do you go from having a hobby or having a knack for being able to create something into a gallery situation? Well, you got to submit your work. So what I always suggest and... Um, my friend Alex Sloan, that's A-L-I-X-S-L-O-A-N, has written a book on um, you know, how, to, how to become successful as an artist. And she interviewed um, me, uh, my, my, um, my boss, Billy Shire at La Luz de Jesus, and a lot of other important gallerists um, in the contemporary, the new contemporary art scene. And we all had slightly different advice, but there was some evergreen stuff. And most of it is if you don't submit, you don't get shown. Um, the other thing is that if you are an artist, you need to have other friends who are artists, uh, not just because it's good to have peers in that you have a group of people who can tell you if what you're doing is working or isn't, um, but that it shows that you're, that you're somebody that other people can get along with. And if you spend too much time in isolation, you start to lose those skills. And trust me, um, regardless of how good your artwork is, um, if you're of a personality that is unpleasant, um, then a lot of galleries just don't want to work with you. So you, you kind of have to learn to get along with others and you have to learn how to follow directions and instructions. And every place has a different way that they like to see things. Um, on our gallery website, we have a, under the contact tab, there's a drop menu that has, you know, about us and submissions. And it's not hard to find. It takes about a minute to be able to, to find that if you look in the top and if you just hover over each of the, the, um, the clickable links at the top, it's really easy to find. And I still get hundreds of emails from people that are asking, how do I submit? And what that shows to me is that they didn't spend more than a minute on the site before they decided to, to throw in the towel and just ask. And, you know, fortune does favor the bold, so maybe it doesn't hurt to ask, but you should exhaust every other resource before you put the onus on the gallery itself to tell you how you can submit to them. Now, if you have looked through a website and you don't seem to be able to find that information, 
then you do want to, you know, contact them and, and ask politely. And um, if you get feedback on your on your artwork that you don't appreciate, um, bite your tongue. You know, don't complain about, um, you know, feeling self-righteous and that, you know, don't defend the work that they've just criticized. Either just move on or, um, you know, find a way to thank them for their time because not all galleries will give you feedback. So if you get any feedback, it's gold. And you can either choose to implement it or not, but the worst thing you can do is get defensive and write something that you're going to regret later. Because if you write a, you know, a really crappy um, letter to somebody, they are basically immediately going to put you on their do not contact list and they'll remember you and it can hurt you, it can sideline you for a really long time, especially if it's, you know, if you're in a small market and they're one of the few galleries around um, you know, it, it can keep you from, from exhibiting locally. A lot of galleries and a lot of gallerists also have, um, positions on museum boards. And so if you start, if you've established a bad reputation, um, some people have a very thick skin, some people don't, and they may carry that grudge and they may just be like, wow, you know, I got a really, really bad email from this person, um, based on me saying that this just wasn't appropriate for my space. You know, they didn't even say anything really bad about the work. It just wasn't appropriate for the space. And, um, to get a, to send any kind of communication out there that would burn a bridge is just a bad idea. Um, you'll get two seconds of satisfaction and you get, um, a really, really long time of, of, you know, bad news. So definitely look into, um, the galleries that you think would be a good fit. Um, don't submit work that doesn't seem to fit the program to us, to a gallery, because that sends a signal to them that you're not paying attention to what they do. So why should they pay attention to you? And, um, but you got to get your work out there and, you know, there's, there's going to be, opportunities to submit to municipal shows. Some municipal shows charge a fee for submission. Um, it's become a lot more common than it used to be. Um, I used to say years ago that if it costs you money to, um, to send your work in, not to do it, but you know, read into it. There are certain galleries that they're not accepting new artists. They're not accepting new work, but if you want to get your work on the radar of the person that owns that gallery, maybe they're going to be participating in an open call at a municipal gallery. And then the money that goes to that municipal gallery to look at submissions helps fund that institution. Number one, you get to write that off as a donation on your taxes. And number two, it will get in front of the galleries that you wanted to see your work anyways. So if it's not too much money, and generally they aren't, um, it's probably very worthwhile. So that's something that you can explore. There's also um, learning how to write grants and um, and grant proposals and and that type of thing where you're actually submitting your artwork for a a possible grant from a society. Sometimes they're government run, sometimes they're institution run, sometimes they're uh, schools. And um, you have to kind of pursue every avenue. And, and those types of things look great on a CV and can help elevate a person that doesn't have the right education into a... Um, into an area where a lot of very blue chip kind of collectors will have access to new work. And smart collectors are always looking at um, emerging artists. So um, it's not unusual for a, a person who collects very, very expensive art to also occasionally buy less expensive art that maybe they're not gonna hang, but they feel like they're, they're helping to, um, to bankroll a young artist. They wanna bankroll the next, say, Basquiat or, or Candy Wiley. So, um, I hope that uh, that has been helpful. And, um, you know, like I say, based on the amount of questions that I get asked in, in my day-to-day -day life, it's, you know, it's, it's the thing that I get asked the most. And, you know, on both ends of the spectrum, it's not very expensive to start an art career. 
Um, and I think that a big question that you have to ask yourself is at what point does it go from a hobby into being something that you pursue more full time? And I think that the reaction you're getting to the work based on sales and that type of feedback is going to be the thing that answers your question. If you have a job that you hate and you are doing something as an activity which helps you um, feel better about things and then that activity actually starts making you money, then you may want to think about making that the thing that, that pays your bills. Um, on the other hand, if you have a great job that you love and your hobby starts to make a little bit of money, you might want to uh, think about balancing the two things until that hobby reaches the level that um, that you need to live your, your lifestyle comfortably. And that's different for everybody. Some people can live with very little things, don't, don't require much at all. Other people need a specific lifestyle. Some people have large families, some people don't. Some people have a spouse that can help out with grant writing and some people don't. You know, there may be somebody in your orbit that can help you submit, you know, because you're, you're maybe good at doing the art, but you're not good at, at the follow-up. You need to have these things. So if it's not you, you have to have somebody else who can help you because if, if you don't, then you're living, you know, as an island and you're going to be disconnected even from your own work, even though you think you're dedicating all that time to it. Um, you need to kind of step away from things and look at the world and bring that back into what you do and have it be relevant or nobody will be able to look at it and see something that they want to, you know, aspire to. And I think that's the, the, the number one thing that people look for in art is aspiration. So, um, you know, if you have any questions, by all means, shoot me an email at uh, info at popsequentialism.com. Occasionally go up, up to the blog and, and check it out. I write about stuff that doesn't necessarily make it on the show every once in a while, but um, that's an easy place to get a hold of us. You can also uh, contact, um, you know, Mason, our um, producer engineer. And if you want to learn about advertising on the show or if you want to recommend topics or if, you've, if you're a publicist and you want to get your guest on the show, he's the person you're going to want to contact. You can also contact me. Um, I hope this has been a, um, a learning experience. I hope uh, you, you got your money's worth. And if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. So uh, until I talk to you again, this has been Matt Kennedy for Pod Sequentialism for Meltdown Comics and La Luz de Jesus Gallery. We'll talk to you soon.